Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with a doctor in Columbus about the ongoing opioid crisis. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend has information about yet another failed effort in the Ohio General Assembly to limit a governor's ability to implement health orders. A look at a proposal to crack down on hazing in Ohio. Comments from the Columbus Public Health Commissioner about what you need when you show up for a scheduled vaccine. And an interview with a new head of the Ohio Democratic Party. And I'll wrap up the hour with a segment about the Ohio Housing Finance Agency and how it can help first-time homebuyers and others. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me is... Dr. Fung Nguyen, who is with Ohio State University's Wexner Medical Center. She's a physician specializing in addiction medicine. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. We're going to talk about aspects of the opioid use crisis. And, you know, everybody's been focused on the pandemic for the last year, but this is an ongoing problem. What can you tell us about what you're still seeing? Well, sadly, we've actually seen an increase in overdoses and um, use of opioids and other um, substances during the time of the pandemic. I would guess that that becomes even more alarming because they kind of get left behind and their lives are even more complicated than they were before when they were dealing with these problems. Yes, um, it's been very difficult for people who are living with substance use disorders um, because so many of the support systems that have been a part of the recovery um, were affected so much by the pandemic. And we're going to talk about one area that we don't hear a lot about. You're involved with a committee dedicated to decreasing stigma around addiction. Can you talk about that? Yes. So um, stigma is very important when it comes to the treatment of patients with uh, any type of substance use disorder, uh, especially with the opioid use disorder, because stigma is when you have negative stereotypes that often about a group of people that often lead to discrimination. And when that occurs, that changes their outcomes when it comes to their mental health, their physical health, and their ability to recover. So who are the folks that are on the committee and what are the kind of things that you're talking about? I uh, work with a number of other physicians, many of them who also have special interest in addiction medicine, as well as nurses, Um, involved in cancer care and mental health and some social workers. Give us some examples of instances, you know, where people are thinking wrongly about those who are are suffering from this. So there are many assumptions that people will make about people who have opiate use disorder. Uh, Some of these assumptions um, are negative, and they include um, statements or comments that the people are uh, choosing to use the substance um, and that it's more, quote, a habit of theirs versus that this is a chronic medical condition that is affecting their brain and that some of the decisions that are made are um, due to changes to their brain from the medical uh, condition rather than a choice that they're making um, to continue to use the substances when it has been very disruptive to their lives. Is it similar in any ways to alcohol where some people have two drinks a day, every day or however much they have, you know, not have it begin to dominate their lives, whereas other people simply can't even have one 
without it beginning to control how they behave and, and how much more they use it. Are drugs that way as well? They are very similar in the sense that all of the substances that are involved in substance use disorder um, actually lead to the same um, end zone change in the brain where there is neuro, there's neurotransmitters or chemicals in your brain that will increase. Um, so no matter which um, substance it is, whether it's alcohol or opiates or um, benzodiazepines um, that are sometimes prescribed for medical reasons, all of those substances uh, do lead to the same type of change in the brain that um, creates a need or a craving for that substance. And you're right that there are some people who are able to have their one drink or two drinks in the evening and not have any problems, but then others uh, do have that problem. And that's part of the, the issue of it being a, a, use, a substance use disorder, is that it has affected their brain in a way that um, is more of a medical condition. And that's sometimes very difficult for other people to understand when they don't have that substance use disorder. Talking with Dr. Fung Nguyen, who is from uh, the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, specializing in addiction medicine. Some of the uh, terms, uh, I understand that there's a desire to move away from some terms like saying that someone is clean when they are no longer taking these drugs because that insinuates at one time they were unclean, which is the wrong way to look at it. That is definitely correct. Um, That term has been used not only um, towards urine drug tests that have been used for screening purposes, uh, but then also towards an actual person. And so it can be very difficult for a person when there is that assumption and implication that they were dirty and that now because they are no longer using those substances and they're abstinent from the drugs, that they are now clean. We hear a lot, too, about folks who are caught up in this opiate situation. They may turn to stealing from family members or, you know, rummaging through medicine cabinets or whatever. And and this is something that is not part of their normal character, which must make it as much, uh, you know, a mental issue as well going forward because they recognize in themselves how much they have changed. So what we do like to do is actually help people separate their behavior from who they are as a person. So with the substance use disorders, there are behaviors that occur that are um, characteristic of the substance use disorder. However, that does not mean that that is a bad person or that is the normal character of that person. And when it comes down to it, I see many people in recovery who beat themselves up over the behaviors that have occurred. And in some ways, they actually stigmatize themselves, and they consider themselves a problem and themselves as the thing that's bad, even though when it comes down to it, it was the behavior that was not welcome. Um, And when they're in recovery, they stop doing those behaviors because they're no longer stuck in that cycle of current addiction. How big of a role does counseling play in addition to just physically being able to separate yourself from opioids? Counseling is really important because it helps people figure out ways of coping with 
are many times where people will relapse or start using a substance again because of the amount of stress that is going on in their lives. So having a good treatment that involves having good treatment that involves counseling um, can help people in the long run um, decrease their chances of any type of relapse in the future. Um, we also like to use medications as well to help people in their substance use disorder uh, to help prevent relapses and um, to help them in their treatment as well. One of those treatments that I've read about is Suboxone, which some are against because they say that in itself is an addictive medication, but others say it's necessary in a way to wean somebody off the harder stuff. What's your thought on that? approved medication for the treatment of opiate use disorder. So it is actually a really important medication that we can use right now to help prevent people from overdosing and to also um, help help people live lives in recovery. It is an opiate in the sense that it has some, or an opioid, it has some of the same characteristics as some of the substances that people have um, used when they've been using substances in their opiate use disorder. However, it is a long-acting medication that helps people have less withdrawal symptoms and decreases cravings and allows them to focus better on their treatment so that they are able to work on some of the skills they need in the long run uh, to live a life in recovery. Talking with Dr. Fong Huynh, who is uh, with the OSU Wexner Medical Center. She's a physician specializing in addiction medicine. You know, the ads that we've been hearing for a couple of years about denial, uh, you know, don't live in denial, Ohio. You've dealt with patients who are struggling. What is your take on the families and the disbelief that these folks have ended up in this situation? Well, when it comes down to it, this is a medical condition. It can happen to anybody, and it's not any type of uh, character judgment when it comes to who is affected by it and who's not affected by it. I mean, 10% of people who use substances end up having a substance use disorder, and so um, knowing that, we need to be open to the idea that it could happen to anybody because it's not about whether somebody's a good person or a bad person. Have the measures that the state has taken over the years in terms of uh, limiting dosages of painkillers and cracking down on pill mills, has that made a difference in opioid misuse? You know, we used to hear that a lot of them were people who had an accident or an injury. They would go on painkillers, and then when the prescription ended, they turned to the street for heroin. What What is the typical story these days that you're seeing? That still does occur, and it is still a concern um, that we are very vigilant about now, uh, which I think uh, was not something that back when more opioids were being prescribed um, had been considered. However, it has decreased significantly. So I do think that the state and um, the healthcare system has been working really hard to decrease those numbers so that there are less people affected. Um, When it comes down to it, it's really important to make sure that um, unused prescription opioids that were not used um, for whatever condition it was uh, prescribed for, 
gets disposed of properly so that it's not hanging around in the house and somebody else who does not need that medication uh, gets their hands on it. And also to make sure that, um, in general, people are aware of how important it is to not um, just try these substances because they are experimenting or want to just try something different. Um, so that would, in that type of situation, includes parents talking to their kids because um, kids just don't seem to realize how dangerous it can be. Um, and having their parents talk to them about it and be upfront about it can be a very useful way of preventing more um, younger people from possibly becoming dependent on these medications. As a doctor, for you to give somebody an opioid prescription, though, and then when it comes to renewal time, too, that puts a lot of pressure on you, I would think, these days. There can be some pressure. Um, However, because I see so many patients who have substance use disorders, I am very particular about who I prescribe those medications to and why. And I make sure that um, it is for very short uh, short time periods if it needs to be prescribed. Um, and usually I will not prescribe any of those medications for chronic pain um, because it, it is not indicated anymore um, for that reason. There are special circumstances for that. Um, so because I am less likely to prescribe them because I know what the possible ramifications are, there isn't as much pressure because I know that I'm doing something that is in the best interest of most of the patients that I'm seeing. And there must be some red flags, too, some of the typical sort of excuses that some patients give that they need more, coming up with reasons that that don't make sense for why they need more. Well, so, I mean, that would be a red flag to make me think that there may be the possibility that someone has a substance use disorder or an opioid use disorder. And if if that's the case, then I would actually dig a little bit deeper into seeing whether we would need to um, uh, help them and treat an opioid use disorder rather than just deny them a medication that they feel like they need for pain. Um, I think it's more about seeing that red flag as an opportunity to help somebody who may have uh, an opiate use disorder that would not have otherwise been recognized. Dr. Wynn, if somebody's uh, listening who either has this problem or somebody in their family does, what, what would your initial statement to them be about what to do? Reach out for help. So there are many um, ways of um, finding help now when it comes to the medical center at Ohio State. We have Talbot Hall, which is the main center for addiction medicine um, at Ohio State. And then I also work in a primary care addiction medicine clinic. So we have some services to help people in need. Um, And there's a lot more community resources as well. So I I would say that the first step would be to reach out, um, make the phone call to see if um, you can make that appointment to at least get an assessment to determine what the next best step may be for you. And what about family members or loved ones, spouses, friends who are seeing the person go through this? I think one of the most important things even though it's difficult at times because of some of the behaviors that may have happened in the past, is to continue to show support and love for the person and remember who they are 
as a person um, rather than focusing on the behaviors that even they most of the time recognize is not the most appropriate. Um, by providing that love and support for that person, uh, it can sometimes bring them a little bit closer to being able to make that step for themselves um, to try to seek some help. Where do you see all this going? Is there going to come a time when we have a better handle on what's going on? I'm optimistic that we continue to do more research to find ways of helping people more and providing more treatment options. So I do think that um, we continue in the medical field to work on this and to continue to do research on it. Um, We also are looking a lot more into prevention. That hasn't been the mainstay because we do want to help the people who currently have a substance use disorder. Um, However, we we are still talking a lot more about prevention and what we can do to um, decrease the number of people who end up developing a substance use disorder. And I think the Don't Live in Denial campaign has been very important in that because it's proactive. It's about getting rid of the prescription medications that are sitting around in the house that don't need to be there by going to a drop-off location or using a drug disposal bag. It's about having parents talk to their kids, um, teenagers, about the dangers of these substances and why it's better to avoid them. You know, it's so interesting because as we talked about earlier, a lot of people are getting sucked into this completely unaware because they've taken medication that they needed and then they become addicted to this medication. But there are others who I think, you know, start out as experimental or recreational, whatever. And that is an interesting segment because we all go through those choices, you know, at some point, especially when we're younger, where we're the risk taker who wants to try it and see what happens and others who never in a million years would do it. Yes. So there's so many different ways to have that initial um, contact with that substance. Um, However, I don't think anyone ever thinks to themselves when they're doing that, even experimenting, that they would want to grow up and have a substance use disorder that could have possibly been prevented by not uh, engaging in that substance in the first place. Talk about the riskiness of it. You know, obviously they know it's dangerous when they're in pursuit of these substances and know that it could kill them. Well, so I think that what it really comes down to is that part of the the characteristics of a substance use disorder include increasing, wanting increasing amounts um, in order to develop the same type of sensation. And so uh, that plays into the brain disease and the changes that are happening to your brain that are um, pushing the person towards increasing amounts to develop more and more of the sensation that they're um, craving. Yeah, it's really tragic. Uh, Dr. Fung Nguyen joining us from Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Anything else you'd like to add? Regarding the stigma um, piece and what we were talking about regarding stigma, um, I think one of the most important things about it is making sure that we speak in a way that is respectful towards everyone and making sure that we um, say things that are characterizing a behavior versus what is a person. So making sure that when we talk about people who have substance use disorders, we are actually saying that. 
we're saying it's a person with a substance use disorder and not an addict, not a junkie, um, not using those terms that are just very negative and make somebody sound like um, they're a bad person. Um, the more respect that people with substance use disorders get, um, the more they're willing to come in for treatment and possibly less um, going to have less of that self-stigmatizing narrative in their head uh, because that because they are thinking that because other people are treating them that way that that's how they should treat themselves as well. And when it comes down to it, everyone deserves respect and uh, deserves the treatment that they need for any uh, chronic medical condition. That's a great point because these folks are already in such a down area of their lives and they're putting a sharp focus on themselves and hypersensitive to what other folks are thinking at the same time. Yes, and I think when somebody shows them kindness, they remember that and they appreciate it and they're more willing to um, seek treatment and become more involved in the in the community, recovery community, uh, when they are welcome and shown respect. Do you recommend uh, folks go online for any information? Yes, so um, if you would like information on stigma, um, there is information on the National Institutes of Health website. Um, so you can just Google um, NIH and stigma um, or Google NIH words matter, and that will bring up um, a website that talks about more about stigma and has tables where it will actually sh- uh, give you advice on which words to use instead of ones that you may have heard in the past that have been um, quite negative. Um, And then when it comes to treatment, um, there are a number of different websites that you can go to. Um, Ohio State Wexner Medical Center does have some information on um, treatment, so our website for the medical center will have information. Interesting take on it, some some new angles on, on this whole problem. Dr. Fung Nguyen joining us. Uh, she's a physician specializing in addiction medicine with the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. We thank you for joining us this morning for Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. When it comes to fighting COVID-19, Governor DeWine has issued several health orders, but some lawmakers want to restrict his power. The Ohio House and Senate voted to do just that. Reporter Kevin Landers was at the State House for the heated debate. This bill belongs in a wastebasket. 
not the revised code. In a debate over the powers of Governor Mike DeWine. Decade after decade, year after year, this body has given the administrative, uh, the administrative branch of government a lot of power. Supporters of amended Senate Bill 22 say the goal is not to prevent the governor or the health director from issuing health orders. In fact, they still can. But the bill bars an executive from reissuing an order or rule for 60 days unless the legislature grants it. If it's good enough for New York and Massachusetts and 30-some other states, it's good enough for us and we should move forward and pass this bill. Opponents argue the bill is unconstitutional and that it will impact the health of Ohioans. It undermines the health and safety of all Ohioans. The bill also allows local school districts, not health departments, to decide if schools will close. you got to take away their authority. I believe that this is truly a historic uh, piece of legislation. The House needed 60 votes to override a veto by the governor, but fell short, passing the bill 57 to 37. Kevin Landers reporting for us. The Senate also voted to approve the bill 25 to 8. The bill also creates an advisory committee, which would make recommendations to the entire General Assembly whether any health order should remain or not. I will have to veto the bill. Uh, there's no governor uh, that I can think of uh, in Ohio who would have not vetoed this, this bill. Okay, that's the governor's answer to that bill being passed. DeWine says he took issue with the bill's language that requires someone be medically diagnosed in order to be quarantined. DeWine used the example of Miami students last year who flew f to Ohio from Wuhan. He said under this bill, that case could have been disastrous. They could have contaminated hundreds and hundreds of people on Miami University's campus with devastating results in Butler County and throughout the state of Ohio, because you never would have been able to prove that the that they had come in contact with somebody who had been medically diagnosed. DeWine said because the bill is a concurrent resolution, not a law, it can't overturn an executive order anyway. All right. Something to look forward to this year. Governor DeWine gave the green light to allow fares this spring. The governor says because COVID-19 cases are going down, he says fares will be allowed to welcome people, but masks and social distancing will be required. He also set a limit of 30 percent capacity in the stands. The governor did promise to end all pandemic-related health orders if the state can remain below 50 cases per 100,000 for two weeks. Mass vaccination sites popping up around the state, and that includes St. John Arena on Ohio State's campus. The clinic will offer the Pfizer vaccine to about 12,500 doses. People who receive their first dose at the pop-up sites will be guaranteed their second dose at the same site approximately three weeks later. Now, if you are struggling to get a vaccine, you can use the state's centralized vaccine scheduling tool. First, you have to go to getthesshot.coronavirus.ohio.gov, fill out the questions, then hit continue and type in your zip code. Click continue again and then the vaccine locations closest to you pop up. Pick the one that works best and you'll be taken directly to that particular website to schedule your appointment. One year since the first COVID-19 case was reported in Ohio, 10TV took time to look back at all this year has shown us. The pandemic shined a light on racism and public health, specifically health disparities in the diagnosis and even treatment and life expectancy for people with COVID. And public health experts say this reality check was long overdue. 
COVID-19 made its presence known and seemingly permanent last spring, reaching pandemic status. Then came the protests over police violence, calls for racial justice and the revelation of another inequity in health and life expectancy. What we're seeing more than anything is more African-Americans, really more minorities, needing hospitalization if they get COVID-19. One year later, the city of Columbus's top doc says she's even more vocal. I am much more comfortable now saying that I am intentionally doing things to help our minority community. Dr. Mashika Roberts, like every other expert in public health, has long known the reality of racism as a health crisis and how social determinants like your zip code can affect your health. I remember that when we typically talk about health disparities prior to the pandemic, we were obviously worried about how minorities were disproportionately impacted with chronic diseases, how we had a shorter life expectancy, and how we had higher rates of infant mortality. Declaring racism a public health crisis meant calling out imbalances in access to health care, education, jobs, housing. Robert says the pandemic made it possible to talk openly about the issues, especially for people outside of health care. The pandemic has opened that arena for everyone in the community and in the in the nation to see those disparities um, front line. I mean, you, you can't hide from, you can't ignore them now. Coming to terms with the crisis and addressing it can be seen as a win in a season of loss. Is there any downside, any negative that I'm missing? Well, I'm sure someone's going to say there's a negative, um, but I don't think there is. Um, I think the negative is just that we had to lose so many lives and so many minorities had to be impacted during this pandemic for people to see this. Medical experts say the next step is critical to cutting through disparities, pushing back against misinformation and myths to ensure that everyone who is eligible gets vaccinated against COVID-19 when they are eligible to do so. The death of a Bowling Green State University student reignited the push to strengthen Ohio's anti-hazing laws. Up next, you will hear from the lawmaker who reintroduced Collins' law. She's going to detail three changes the bill aims to make. Plus, I talk one-on-one with the new leader of the Ohio Democratic Party. Find out why she wanted to even be the party chair. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Every state university... um, has significant rules and regulations in regard to hazing. But it's clear to me that in 2021, we still have a culture problem among some people. And that simply, that simply must change. We cannot tolerate this. Governor Mike DeWine made that statement following the death of Bowling Green State University student Stone Fultz. The 20-year-old is from Delaware County. Police say Fultz died after an alleged hazing incident involving alcohol. As a result, Pi Kappa Alpha at BGSU is suspended. Following Fultz's death, thousands signed an online petition calling for tougher anti-hazing measures in our state. State Senator Stephanie Kunze of Hilliard introduced a bill that would increase penalties for those involved in hazing incidents on or off campus to felonies. 10TV's Kevin Landers talked with Kunze about the goals of this legislation. 
Collins Law, um, it was introduced, as you said, last General Assembly. We've made a few changes to it. Um, what it, what the three goals are um, to educate students and in incoming, um, any, any student incoming to a college or university in the state of Ohio, um, really about the dangers of hazing and really what hazing is. I think students sometimes feel like um, there's activities that are going on and it's just, you know, it's just fun or it's a tradition. It's something that's always happened. And I don't think they understand sometimes the incremental buildup that hazing becomes where they get into a situation where they can't say no. Um, they think it's almost over. So they think they can endure it a little longer. We really want to do an education piece and make sure that every student really understands um, what it looks like and change the culture at our state colleges and universities. The second uh, goal is transparency. We want to make sure that parents and students know before they join any kind of club or activity or student group um, if there had been any kind of incidences previously um, and what those look like. And then third um, is an increase in penalties uh, for people involved with hazing, um, whether it be uh, forcing people to drink alcohol or some other kind of coercion with um, something, a substance that could be harmful to them as well. So really those three things working together to change the culture and change the mindset of students um, to, to keep them safe. And as you just heard, the bill that Kunze introduced is a new version of Collins Law named after Colin Wyant. The Ohio University freshman died in 2018 after a hazing incident. Wyant's mother talked with 10TV's Clay Gordon about the renewed efforts to pass Collins Law. Colin was just a, a wonderful person, a very thoughtful um, lively kid um, would always do anything to stand up for other people, stand up for himself. Um, that's why the hazing was such a shock to us. That's what threw me into it because I just couldn't understand that Colin of all people could fall for hazing. You know, I'm just so upset. so sad for Stone's family. I know everything they're going through. Um, all, all their friends and you see the ripple effect. I mean, this affects so many kids. They started the Bowling Green students started something on change.org for Collins Law and it overnight it has 8,000 signatures, I think. So you can just tell that kids are tired of the hazing. Parents are tired of the hazing. People want things to change. It's tragic that some another death had to happen in order for uh, Collins Law to kind of get renewed. Is that right? So we had planned to reintroduce it about this time frame. With Stone's death being on the forefront of everyone's mind, people can't hear this and not think about that. And it's now so emotional. You know, Collins passing happened two and a half years ago. To a lot of people, it's become a new story they're used to. With stones being so fresh, that, that raw emotion, I think, is really driving people. We will make sure to watch SB 126 and certainly let you know when it takes the next step forward. You can be the first to know when big updates happen in any story in Central Ohio. Download the 10TV app to your smartphone and sign up for alerts. The Save Women's Sports Act is another bill recently reintroduced in Ohio. Representative Jenna Powell reintroduced it. She says the bill is to help ensure every little girl in the state can achieve the American dream through athletics fairly. A representative with Equality Ohio, however, says there is no unfair advantage by allowing a transgender person to compete in female sports. She argues that the bill would create fear and depression for those struggling to feel comfortable in their own skin. 
And what we're seeing nationwide is when we're having biological males compete against females, it robs females of their athletic opportunity. Why would we do this to a group of young people who are already struggling? This is only going to harm them further. And in fact, the mere introduction of this bill harms them. Powell says if passed, the bill would supersede guidelines currently in place by the Ohio High School Athletic Association. The bill's next step is to have a hearing in the House committee. Representative Tim Ryan moved into the national spotlight over his heated comments on Capitol Hill about legislation for union workers. Heaven forbid we pass something that's going to help the damn workers in the United States of America. Now stop talking about Dr. Seuss and start working with us on behalf of the American workers. I yield back the balance of my time. Ryan lashing out at his Republican colleagues during debate. The House ultimately approved the bill, which would block so-called right-to-work laws and make it easier to organize a union. But while it's endorsed by President Biden, it faces heavy opposition from Republicans, meaning it's unlikely to go anywhere. The State Medical Board of Ohio is re-examining 91 cases that could involve sexual impropriety over the past 25 years. This announcement came after the working group reviewing the medical board's handling of the Richard Strauss investigation turned in their findings. Governor DeWine created the group back in 2019 to investigate all sexual assault allegations against physicians that were investigated and closed. Strauss sexually assaulted at least 177 male students while working for 20 years in Ohio State's athletic department. He died by suicide in 2005. As the COVID-19 vaccine becomes more available, some people who want the shot have specific concerns that aren't health-related. There are thousands of undocumented people here in Ohio who might wonder how or even if they can sign up. 10TV's Gabriela Garcia clears the air. There was not so much a hesitancy. There was just a lot of questions. Ramona Reyes is a board member for Columbus City Schools and the director for Our Lady of Guadalupe Center, helping poor and vulnerable families who are often undocumented. They've been asking, when can I register? I'm waiting for an English speaker. If you call in, having someone speak in Spanish. Columbus Public Health says they do have Spanish language resources online and translators waiting to take their calls. When you do register, we ask you demographic information, so your name, your date of birth, your address, your phone number, your email address if you have it, what phase you qualify for. We do not ask anyone's immigration status. We do ask you if you have health insurance, but we will vaccinate individuals without health insurance. We do it all the time. Columbus Public Health does ask for people's social security numbers, but it's not necessary to put one down. As far as documentation when you show up for the shot, they do ask for ID. And that's really just to verify that the person who shows up is the same person who made the appointment. And that ID can be anything. It can be obviously a driver's license, passport, a work ID with your picture on it can be used. And if people don't have it, by no means do we turn them away. Undocumented or documented, Dr. Roberts says the city will work with everyone to get them vaccinated. Columbus Public Health is a safe place to go and get their vaccine. Reporting in Columbus, Gabriela Garcia, 10TV News. Ohio Democrats have a new leader, and she has a big task ahead of her. Liz Walters was elected to the role earlier this year after former chairman David Pepper resigned at the end of 2020. I talked with Walters about where she thinks the party is heading in 2021. Why did you want to be the party chair? 
That's a great question. Uh, Six weeks into the job, it's a a question I sometimes grapple with, but in the best way. For me, the, the question was really about how could I play a role in restoring progressive democratic leadership in my state. This is my home. It's where I live my life. It's where my family is, where my friends are, where my neighbors are. And I really think that for for them and for the working families of Ohio, um, we need a return to progressive democratic leadership in this state, which has been missing for a long time. And so when the opportunity to to run for chair came up uh, and consulted with some of the leaders in this state that I really respect, I thought this could be a way that I could play a meaningful role in to building uh, back better in Ohio, right? Delivering mm-hmm. on some uh, really much needed changes at the state level for that the working families of Ohio are counting on. Historically speaking, it's been a long time since the Democrats have really kind of had a stronghold on, on leadership mm-hmm. in the state. Yeah, when you look back at the uh, the last few decades in Ohio, with the exception of the four-year Ted Strickland term in the early 2000s, this state has been led by Republicans. And I think Ohioans um, should be questioning, what has that gotten them, right? We've gotten a state house that's continued to be more and more shamelessly corrupt and taking backroom deals and selling out working families of Ohio. And Ohio has continued to kind of slip further and further down uh, in national core national indicators like educational attainment, child poverty, um, and the list goes on. And so while uh, for sure on a party side, we have our work cut out for us to build a state party and build an organizing model that's going to help deliver some changes, um, I think it also really calls the question for Ohio voters of, um, you know, looking back at that, you know, 30 years of leadership and what has that meant for uh, kind of the success of Ohio's working families. I have to ask, though, when you think about it, you know, the way you put it is one way, but what has been the issue for the Democrats? Why, why, how did they lose this, the stronghold or lose their footing? Well, I think, you know, in a, in a state like Ohio, it's not uh, an either or question. There's not usually one single thing. And you look back over just the last six years and there's ways that Democrats have had really good successes. We've taken back three seats on the Supreme Court. We've reelected U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown. And so Ohio really is that sw- kind of swing state, right? It's a bellwether and we go back and forth. Um, but at the state level, uh, there are ways in which we just need to do more to communicate our message to the voters. Um, and I think for Ohio Democrats, um, in particular in Ohio, it's how we're, how we're really, um, kind of modernizing the the campaign apparatus, ensuring that we are building the digital tools we need to communicate effectively, but also really being present in all corners of the state. So the winning coalition for Ohio Democrats, it's no one thing, it's many things, right? And so if you look back at the last six years, just just last six years, we need to do as well um, as Hillary did in our cities, as well as Rich Cordray did in Appalachia, and as well as President Biden did in the suburbs. And that's the winning math for Ohio Democrats. Now the trick is to do all three at once. How do you, um, as a party, reach into those areas of the state that um, have seen a lot of economic loss and that are hurting? Because typically you would think that's where you would have the votes. So great question, right? And again, not to oversimplify the answer, but it starts by showing up. And there's parts of the state where we haven't really shown up meaningfully in a, in, in a while. Uh, I think the the 
from a community presence, you know, our county parties are everywhere and they're doing really good work on local races, but having that persistent presence of particularly from the organizing side of being present in these communities uh, for longer than just the three months before an election is really important, right? We kind of have gotten into the habit of showing up you know, four months from an election saying, hey, we're here now, you're going to vote for us, right? And then being surprised when the conversations are a little harder. So how do we get out there early and really listen to Ohioans and really ask the questions of what's on your mind? What are those things you're struggling with? And I think that getting back into some authentic relationships in every community is really going to be key to our success. Ohio's Republican Party has a new leader, too. The Ohio Republican Party elected Bob Paduchik, a political operative and former Republican National Committee man, as its next chair. Paduchik won the support of the state central committee and was the heavy favorite ahead of the party vote. He had an endorsement from former President Donald Trump. I've made several requests to talk with the party chair, and to date, there's been no response. Paduchik replaces Jane Timken, who you may remember left her post in January to run for retiring GOP senator seat of Rob Portman. Veteran media personality Geraldo Rivera says he won't be running for Ohio's open Senate seat. He said he would consider it, but the next day he tweeted, after a 36-hour pondering whirlwind, I've decided not to seek public office. He added that he deeply appreciates the good wishes of those cheering the idea. Former Ohio Treasurer Josh Mandel and Timken are two Republicans who already announced they will run. So we'll continue to watch that. No Democratic candidates have officially thrown their hat into the ring for Portman's seat, but several people have mentioned they are considering a run, and that includes former Ohio Department of Health Director Dr. Amy Acton, Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley, Franklin County Commissioner Kevin Boyce, Franklin County Recorder Danny O'Connor, and State Representative Amelia Sykes. The U.S. Senate confirmed Ohio Representative Marsha Fudge as the head of the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Fudge represents the Cleveland and Akron area of Ohio, and she said during her confirmation hearing that her first priority would be protecting those who have fallen behind on rent. Fudge won bipartisan support for her nomination, including from Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. We certainly thank you for being here with us today. Remember, if it affects you, your family, and Ohio, we're here to make sure those accountable face the state. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Neil Armstrong waited six hours and 39 minutes to step onto the surface of the moon. Jackie Robinson waited 20 months to play his first game with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And even DiCaprio had to wait 22 years to win an Oscar. You can wait until your destination. Don't text and drive. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Dorcas Jones, who is the Chief Communications Officer for the Ohio Housing Finance Agency. How are you? I'm great, Dave. Thanks. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, Tell us about the Ohio Housing Finance Agency. The Ohio Housing Finance Agency, we like to call it OFA for short, is the state's affordable housing lender. We work with developers across the state to build affordable housing, and we also provide programs for first-time home buyers and others who are looking to get into a home and buy and purchase their home. And affordable housing is becoming a bigger and bigger issue all the time, isn't it? Oh, most definitely. 
and and I think that it's been um, even more obvious in the course of the last year or so that affordable housing is definitely a necessity for a lot of different communities and folks out there in different cities and even particularly in Ohio, of course. It's so interesting because, you know, you can buy a house probably up around the Mansfield area for sixty or $70,000 that might cost twice that or more in the Columbus area. But then you have to keep in mind, too, that the folks up in that area may not be making as much as people down here, so they face the same problems. That's true. And one of the things that OFA strives to do with its home buyer programs it's, is, um, depending upon where you live, there are different income and purchase price um, eligibility criteria that folks um, can meet. So, for example, like in Mansfield, the income and purchase price would likely be different than in Franklin County, um, which gives everybody the opportunity to use our program so that they can then get into a home um, to, you know, for those who want to establish that American dream. So give us an, an example. If it's, if it's uh, you know, I don't know, a couple in, it wouldn't matter where they're from, I guess, in Ohio, if they're, I guess, what, low to middle income with perhaps poor credit? Are those the folks that were that you're, you're mainly trying to help or what? That's correct. Our goal is to help folks in the low to moderate income level be able to purchase their first home. So, for example, in Franklin County, um, one of the income eligibility requirements for um, an SHA or government loan is a one- to two-person household could make up to $101,400, and a three-person or more household uh, could make up to $118,300. And for a conventional loan, um, a household, no matter the size, would make up to $67,680. So that's just um, a glimpse at Franklin County. It looks different um, across the state in different counties, and all of that information is is available on our website, myohiohome.org, to find out where you might fall on that spectrum. That's good to know, though, because those income guidelines are far above uh, the poverty line. I'm sure that you're helping folks below it as well, but but it doesn't. You don't have to be in poverty in order to be eligible. Right, absolutely, and we have a lot of different kinds of programs to help folks. Um, in various stages of life. So we have programs that include down payment closing cost assistance. We have a mortgage tax credit that we um, can offer folks. Um, there are We are competitive with our interest rates um, and regarding that. And we actually do have, although most of our programs are targeted for first-time home buyers, we do have a program called Next Home that is for persons who have owned a home before, um, but for whatever reason don't currently own and are interested in owning again. So again, all of that information is available on our website, myohiohome.org. Talking with Dorcas Jones, Chief Communications Officer for the Ohio Housing Finance Agency, or OFA. So when folks are looking into the housing market, do their realtors sometimes say, hey, you know, you should get with the Ohio Housing Finance Agency, they can help you with this? Or is this all independent of of that step in the process? 
So, yeah, um, that's a really great question. We work really hard to get as much information out there as possible to realtors and to lenders in the state. Um, so what will happen when a homeowner decides that they are looking to purchase a home and they get some information maybe off of the myohiohome.org website, the next step that they would take would click would be to find a lender. Mm -hmm. which is also available on the website. And so, of course, we have partners all across the state. We are a state agency, and so we're not limited to any one county. We have um, products available for all 88 counties of the state. They will find a lender um, that is working in their area, and those lenders can then begin the process with folks to determine which programs might be best for them, what they're eligible to um, apply for, and then they will work with their mortgage lender to um, finish finish the process with OFA. So OFA provides the programs and works with the lenders who carry out the process with the, with the homeowner, with the potential home buyer. And what would the, the biggest benefit be that you can maybe, if somebody's credit isn't stellar, you can still get them a better interest rate than they might otherwise, or what? So we do have some credit requirements. Um, scores are uh, the highest score that's needed is 650. Um, and then there's um, another that um, one of our other programs is, is 640. And if someone doesn't have the credit number, credit that reaches those numbers, the thing that we always recommend to folks is to reach out to a HUD-approved counseling agency to get some help with how to maybe raise their scores so they could be eligible for our programs. And, and housing counseling agencies, HUD-approved ones, um, you can look those up on the HUD.gov website um, for excuse me, housing counseling agencies to get that information. How has the pandemic over the last year affected the agency? We have been going strong. One of the things that was um, an, an early, um, some early misinformation that was out there was that we weren't uh, providing our programs anymore, and that was definitely not the case. We have been and will continue to do so, be able to provide our programs. Our programs remain fully funded and available um, for all 88 counties uh, across the state. Uh, for the most part, um, there has been a little bit of slowing in folks using our programs, which isn't a complete surprise, obviously, because there's been a significant economic um, impact to a lot of folks across the state and across the nation. But we are definitely still um, um, encouraging folks to look us up if they are in the market to purchase a home um, and they are ready to, um, again, make that next step toward home ownership. Is everything that you deal with, uh, does it deal with home ownership or do you help renters at all? Anything along that line? So we don't provide financial assistance to renters specifically. However, the uh, um, other half of what OFA does is we provide funding to developers across the state who do build affordable housing, which tends to be apartment um, apartment uh, complexes or developments to for renters who fall within um, income limits for that type of housing. We are affiliated with um, a website called the Ohio Housing Locator. It's ohiohousinglocator.org where renters who are interested or in need of a different place to live can um, put in, um, look up rental possibilities by city, county, or zip code. And that, again, is something that 
um, is statewide, no matter where you live, there very well could be resources um, available for renters who are interested in finding a new place to live. So that's ohiohousinglocator.org. Talking with Dorcas Jones, Chief Communications Officer for the Ohio Housing Finance Agency. The situation here in central Ohio, I mean, I guess kudos to us for, you know, the kind of booming housing market. But boy, it really is squeezing a lot of people out. There's very little housing available right now, almost record low, and prices are continuing to go up. That's true, um, which is yet another reason why we're hoping that folks can know um, and be able to utilize our programs, because they do provide some significant support for folks who are out there looking for um, a way to purchase their first home. It can be a very intimidating process. And OFA is here with some extra resources to kind of help temper some of that stress level a little bit. Uh, Buying a home is not always the smoothest process, but if you can have one portion or some portion of that alleviated, I know um, as a homeowner that can definitely help. So our programs are fully funded. Um, Again, we have down payment assistance, closing cost assistance, a mortgage tax credit, just several different kinds of programs that also some of them can be coupled together so they can be used together to provide the best bang for the buck for folks who are looking to buy, purchase a home. And I'm curious, for folks uh, in more rural areas, uh, if it's a manufactured home or a mobile home, uh, might that be eligible as well? Yes. Yes. Uh, Manufactured homes are eligible to utilize our programs. That's great. And I also wanted to talk about not just uh, housing, but you have an event coming up, your third annual event coming up in April. Yes, thanks for asking. The third annual Race for a Place to Call Home is a walk and or run 5K. This is our third year doing it. This year, obviously, due to the health crisis happening um, across the nation, world, and in Ohio, we are doing the race virtually. But the beautiful thing about the Race for a Place to Call Home 5K is that all of the proceeds go to organizations who are on the front lines of dealing with housing insecurity issues. So we're talking everything from homelessness to emergency housing services. Um, Some of these programs help victims of domestic violence, families, veterans, you name it. And so all of the proceeds from this event go to those organizations. The event is Saturday, April the 17th at 9 a.m., but we're encouraging participants who can't necessarily uh, walk or run with us at 9 a.m. on the 17th to use any time during that weekend to get out, whether it's in your community, your neighborhood, If you want to stay at home and just uh, walk or run on your treadmill, of course, that's completely okay. We're just encouraging folks to participate with us. And if you do participate with us, uh, take a picture of yourself and hashtag race, the number four, and the word place. That's hashtag race, the number four, place across all social media so that we can uh, be in this together. So, again, the race for a place to call home. The 5K on Saturday, April the 17th at 9 a.m. And I see on the website you can register now, and there's some bling for folks who do it, right? Yeah, we've got a, a swag bag for those who are interested in coming and picking picking that up. We will have curbside pickup available. All of that information is available on our website at ohiohome.com 
www.ghostsofthecross.org. We're really hoping that folks will will join us this year in this great cause. That's great. Again, Dorcas Jones joining us, Chief Communications Officer for the Ohio Housing Finance Agency. Anything else you'd like to add? No, Dave. I appreciate the opportunity. It's a pleasure. Great. Thanks for talking to us, and uh, good luck on the, on the 5K coming up. Great. I appreciate it. Thanks. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.